Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Unchained. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This week on the show, I have a fireside chat I conducted with Parity and Polkadot founder Gavin Wood at the Polkadot Decoded conference last week. Gavin answered my questions while sipping whiskey, which those of you watching the video will see. In this episode, we discuss what his vision was in creating Polkadot, what kinds of parachains he expects will be created there, and how he believes Polkadot can coexist with Ethereum. We also discuss whether DeFi-like composability will ever be possible on Polkadot, whether DOTs are a security, and Parity's history with security lapses, and how that could affect Polkadot since all parachains share security provided by the base layer. It was a fun and fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto, all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. One Inch Exchange is DeFi's leading DEX aggregator that discovers the best trade practices across all DEXs. One Inch was launched in May 2019 by two white hat hackers at ETH Global's ETH New York Hackathon. One Inch has reached almost $7 billion in overall volume in just over a year. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Laura. Nice to see you again. Likewise. All right. So let's have a discussion about all things Polkadot. Let's start with a really basic question. What is your vision for Polkadot? When you conceived of it, what problems were you trying to solve? Well, there are many sort of answers uh, to this question. It's... um... Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. In many respects, it was a very abstract thing that I wanted to do when I started Polkadot. It was a um, really just a push to become more abstract, more general over um, over what it was that we were solving, uh, what it was that we were uh, producing. So it's like you know, Bitcoin started off with a very basic scripting language. Ethereum sort of introduced this much more um, complete um, means of, of scripting financial transactions. Um, and really with Polkadot, it was uh, trying to create something that uh, uh, produced like an even more general model for how um, how, how it can be extended, um, how things can be added. Um, and then on top of that, it was really also trying to address this, you know, fundamental problem of scalability. Like, how do we try and push through more transactions? How do we take advantage of the fact that there's an awful lot of workers out there on the network? Um but uh, it's so wasteful to have them all working on the same thing. Um, so it was it was these twin sort of topics, these this generality and uh, and and scalability. And really, the the vision was was just to sort of make blockchain great again. It's like, can we take blockchain to its um, uh, you know a step further? Um, can we actually address some of these really uh, important issues that we've always known have existed? Um, you don't, have, you know, you can go really quite far back five, ten years, um, and see that people are already thinking. Well, we really need to, like, you know, process different transactions on different nodes. We really need to be more general. 
Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it, it was really just kind of, can we, can we bring this forward? Can we be more general? Can we process more uh, transactions on different nodes? And when you say the words general and abstract, um, I'm not really sure what you mean. You've also talked about how Polkadot is a meta protocol. Are those mm. concepts related? And can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, uh, they are. They are. So a meta protocol is, um, it's like a, a meta means sort of after or beyond. And it's generally used to mean like um, the next sort of step down uh, past this concept. So it's like, you know, um, a meta protocol is a protocol that um, governs another protocol, a protocol on which you can place another protocol. It's like um, a protocol of a protocol or protocol of protocols. Um, and what I mean by meta protocol in this sense, really, is uh, that it's an underlying kind of much more basic, much simpler um, protocol on which we build what we would normally consider to be the protocol. So to take an example, um, the protocol of, of, of Bitcoin is, well, we send blocks around and these blocks, when you uh, execute them, uh, when you when you interpret the blocks or the transactions in them, um, there are, you know, uh, transactions with like some script. But basically, most of the time, it means send these Bitcoins to these addresses. Um, and that's that's a protocol we under like the nodes of the bitcoin network understand how to in, interpret these blocks right it's language basically um but it's very difficult once you've set that language it's kind of set in stone it's very difficult to to alter it to change it to introduce additional features um to fix bugs um and uh as, you know it's like it's 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 very rigid um a meta protocol would sit underneath that protocol and define that protocol. And the nice thing is that because um, because it's defined in terms of this meta protocol, then you can change it quite easily. You just have to obey the rules of the meta protocol, and then the main protocol can can adapt and evolve and iterate over time. So then the question is, well, why is that? You know, what if you need to adapt, evolve, and iterate on the meta protocol? Um, and the the idea with that is that we make it as simple um, and as uh, as abstract as possible. We take a pre-existing technology, something that has already kind of been iterated through, something that very clever people uh, from many different sort of um, stakeholders have already argued about and sort of come to the decision that this is probably the best thing that does this kind of meta protocolistic stuff. And and what we did was well, we we chose. Uh, basically WebAssembly, because WebAssembly is like an industry standard. Um, it's been iterated on. It, it's actually the already uh, two separate technologies, one built by Mozilla, one built by Google, has sort of been splunged together into this um, into this thing, WebAssembly. Um, so it, it's already got a lot of ideas. It's already had a lot of iterations. Um, it's unlikely that we're ever really going to need to change it. And therefore, it's, it's really good foundation to build our stuff on met this meta protocol and then we just have to define everything else in terms of that and that's where the protocol comes in so the real polka dot protocol parachains and governance and balancings and dot protocol and staking all of this stuff is the polka dot protocol and that stuff changes over time but it's defined in terms of the meta protocol that doesn't really change over time and that's that's the stuff that we that 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 we make sure that we've got this like tried and tested, um, uh, very uh, uh, sort of well understood, well known 
um, um, technology in like WebAssembly. So yeah, it's, it, it is a lot about being flexible and abstract because this top level, the Polkadot protocol is not very abstract. I mean, it, it is, parachains are pretty good, but they're still a very, um, a very specific way of having different sort of shards. They're a specific way of scaling. They're a specific way of, uh, like, uh, having a market mechanism to claim them. Um, so it's, it's still like opinionated, as we would say. There's still a lot of opinions involved in it. Whereas the WebAssembly isn't very opinionated at all. It's not even our opinion. It's someone else's Google's and Mozilla's and Microsoft's and all of their opinions, really. We just said, right, well, you guys have had time to argue about what, whose opinion is best. Uh, we'll take the answer and use it because we don't want to argue. We just want to have something that's stable. And that's that's sort of because of that, it's a, it's a more abstract level that we can build things on. So there is this like these dual um, le levels, the meta protocol, very abstract, very general, doesn't change very much. And the protocol, um, much more, um, much more opinionated, more specific changes a lot because we don't, you know, our opinions are always wrong in the fullness of time. Opinions are always on. They always need changing. Design always needs changing. It, 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 it iterates over time and we want to allow ourselves to evolve and that's why having these two separate um protocols the meta protocol on the bottom the protocol building on top of it is uh, is how we achieve that and it's the same with with um it's the same how we get from bitcoin to ethereum to Polkadot. um there is this um idea of like well with with bitcoin it wasn't really programmable with ethereum it was kind of programmable but you had this very limited computation model with gas and dynamic gas pricing and dynamic uh, counting of resources and limited memory and storage and, and it was all very expensive um and that all that changes with the computation model in polkadot because we have parachains which are much more abstract much more general um, in that they're not just a smart contract, a, a, an easy little bit of code um, that, that sort of uh, keeps some records of maybe people's balances, but rather an entire blockchain uh, that can basically kind of do more or less anything that you can imagine a blockchain to do. And um, that that's a much more abstract thing. For, and I'll give you a concrete reason why that's an, a, an abstract thing. You could easily implement a smart contract inside of a blockchain there already are blockchains that do it edgeware moonbeam a few others um you can't do it the other way around you can't implement a blockchain inside of a smart contract because it's there's just not enough computational power it's like you know you'd, you'd be like trying to shove a, a, a shoe inside of a foot <laughs> you know it, it doesn't there's there's no you know it's it, it, it one can contain the other the other can't contain the one and and that's uh, that's why you know it's we can say well look you know Polkadot and the parachain model is is more general than the smart contract model. Um, now it doesn't mean it's better for all use cases in all circumstances, but it does mean that anything that you can do in a smart contract you can do in a in a parachain, and but not the other way around. There's a lot of things that you can do in a parachain that you really can't. Or that at least, at the very least, would be extremely difficult to do in a smart contract. And you also have parathreads. Can you define those and differentiate them from the parachains? Yeah. So parachains, um, as a term, it's sort of it's, it's evolved a little bit over time. But broadly speaking, parachains are these these slots. They're they're like um, there's a, there's a, some number of them, um, and they're a little bit like 
um, compute like computer cores. So your computer has a bunch of cores. I mean, this this one that I'm on, I think, has four, but uh, some of them these days have six or eight or even more. Um, and the cores can process a particular application um, at once. So if you've got a bunch of windows open, um, then it might be that one of the cores is doing the video playing in one window, and another core is helping your web browser render the email in another window, and another core is playing your music in the background or whatever. Um, so they can do different workloads. Well, basically, parachains are are like this, but for for a blockchain. So they can do, they they do different workloads. One of them might be processing smart contract transactions. Another might be processing like balance transfers, like kind of Bitcoin transfer transactions. Another one might be doing governance. Another one might be calculating what the optimum staking situation is. Um, so it can do each of these cores, each of these para. Uh, parachains can do different things at any given time and we measure time in terms of blocks so it's like this particular block block number 1,470,293 um, is doing this it's doing um, it's got a staking parachain it's got a governance parachain it's got a two or three smart contract parachains and so on um, now para threads are when we say right well this application doesn't need to be processing transactions literally every block. Maybe it only needs to process transactions every 10th block, right? So instead of it happening every six seconds, it's every minute. Um, now that's perfectly reasonable. Bitcoin doesn't process transactions, you know, some of the time it takes an hour before the transactions go through, you know, on average it should be about 10 minutes. Um, so it's, it's not unreasonable to expect that probably one block uh, in every 10 is sufficient for quite a lot of use cases. So then we say, right, well, rather than having, rather than having the, this application just constantly, always um, uh, taking up one of these processing slots, um, even when maybe it doesn't have that many transactions to process, um, instead what we do is we say, right, well, you don't get any, like, by default, but when you're ready to process some some transactions, when you've got a you've got a bunch in your queue and you you, you I don't know they're important enough or they've been waiting long enough or whatever, then um, you pay a bit of money, but only a little bit, and and they get processed. You sort of just push them bulk onto the onto the Polkadot um, sort of network, um, and you get a block. It's like you get in one of these Polkadot blocks. You get your block being processed. You get your block of transactions um, through. And you um, gave an example of how Bitcoin only has a block every 10 minutes, but what types of projects do you see as wanting, like, you know, to be on a pair of thread as opposed to a pair of chain? Can you give some examples? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. So one of them would be an Oracle. So you can imagine there will be some Oracle um, situations. They're feeding in data from the external world. Now, feeding in a load of data every six seconds seems overkill for a lot of, a lot. I mean, you know, if you're talking about weather data, you don't need to update the weather every six seconds, right? Um, maybe, maybe once a um, an hour. I don't know, once a day. Um, but yeah, definitely not every six seconds. Um, you know, five hundred raindrops have fallen. <laughs> Four hundred ninety three more raindrops have fallen. No. Um, so you know, we can imagine that that actually, and with weather, it's like you know, maybe once an hour, once every half hour tops, and and it. it and maybe it doesn't matter whether it's you know literally thirty seconds to the uh, thirty minutes to the dot after the last update. Maybe it's okay for it to be like thirty thirty one minutes after the last update. You know, there's no huge um, uh, huge time 
um, um, uh, deadline. And that would be a really good one um, for Parathreads because, you know, they would just basically have um, some amount of of of, uh, of, of money, of, of tokens or whatever, that they want to pay in order to get their new block of weather information, their update in. And uh, and then they just, you know, wait until the block, the, the chain of Polkadot is sufficiently unused, underutilized, and then their, their block will go in. A little bit like how transactions work in Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. So, you know, you've got, your, um, you've got a transaction fee and maybe it sticks around for a block or two or three until a miner picks it up because there aren't enough other transactions that are paying more. So very similar in that regard, basically just a, a, an adaptive market. Another use case would be um, a, a regional um, applications. So it could be that there's like um, a, a, a US-centric or a China-centric um, insurance app. And it's like, look, people don't claim their insurance, well, mostly uh, at 4 a.m., right? Mostly any 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 shit that's going down <laughs> happens at four a.m. Perhaps, but the insurance comes a day or two later in daylight hours, um, and so realistically, for these kinds of of, of regional daylight hour use cases, they're going to have like eight ten hours where it's 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 people are going to use it. There's going to be transactions, uh, but the rest of the day, the rest of the twenty four hour period, um, there won't be very much going on. And it doesn't make sense, therefore, to have a par- you know, have, a, have a constantly scheduled parachain um, slot um, if you know sixty percent of the time it's not being used, no transactions right. going through. And what about parachains? What are the types of parachains that you're envisioning will exist? Well, I mean, it's going to be an ecosystem, so there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of different things all kind of helping each other um, to, uh, to to get to like the end use cases. Something that seems pretty clear is that we can't jump past this stage. Um, the magic of blockchain isn't really in delivering a specific use case uh, really well. We've had a lot of time to do that and nothing's really come through. Um, one or two minor exceptions, but more or less. Um, what Where we have seen uh, huge uh, hugely promising developments is in the emergent effects of being able to combine multiple use cases um, that, uh, well, multiple applications, let's say, multiple solutions um, in an environment where they can uh, they can form symbiotic relationships, build on top of each other um, and provide a composite solution that no one ever really designed, but that, that nonetheless um, uh, you know, uh, fulfills some goals. So, you know, you've got the flash loans, you've got like the paycheck loans, you've seen a bit of the DeFi um, uh, 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 thing happening at the moment. That's that's kind of where I think um, where blockchain is is able to provide like a, a, a good step forward in providing these um, trustless environments where people can be very experimental and deploy um, interesting uh, um, use cases that are interesting applications, interesting you know bits of code that build upon that that form symbiotic relationships with pre-existing bits of code and that allow others to build upon that. Um, so this this is what we call composition. It's what we call you know emergent effects. And I think uh, I think that's really where things are going to go. So what what kind of parachains? I mean you know there's going to be parachains that want to specialize in uh, smart contracts and for sure, um, just because they're an easier way of developing and deploying stuff than a full-blown blockchain. Um, though, interestingly enough, not that much easier. 
I think we're going to see different um, different blockchains that come with a kind of niche um, uh, niche applications that they provide, plus a smart contract component that allows people to sort of extend those applications. So at the moment we have in in chains like Ethereum, we have a lot of um, a, lot, a lot of smart contracts deployed into them, each one fulfilling a particular niche, um, but None of them are none of them are particularly performant. None of them scale well. None of them are really utilizing um, the computational power of the machines. What I think we're going to end up with is having um, the smart contract environment primarily used for extent extension, like extending the functionality of things, um, but where the, the the blockchain itself provides um, the sort of really bread and butter logic for you know doing flash loans for doing decentralized exchanges, um, for transferring funds, um, for governance voting functions. Um, this, is this I think, is going to um, migrate to a more fixed um, part of the blockchain, like, like basically what Substrate provides to you. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the smart contracts, the sort of fastest, fast iteration on the smart contracts – uh, where people can develop and deploy very quickly will um, will be for more um, experimental, extent, extensible stuff. So I think we're going to have a lot of smart, a lot of different flavor smart contract chains um, doing things. You know, super diverse stuff. Um, uh, we're going to have Oracle chains, like we're going to be chains that are sp- very um, specialized to just have data pumped into them. There'll be chains that actuate stuff. I think. Um, so you know, Slocket. I don't know. They're not really doing much anymore. But as far as I know, sorry if if, if you are guys. They were acquired um, by Blockchains LLC. Right. Yeah. Um, so you know, but good example of an actuator where they're actually you know um, the the transactions on a blockchain are having effects in the physical world. I think we will see these kinds of um, these kinds of things growing. You know, whether it's I mean maybe it's home automation. Maybe there's a blockchain that that. You know, its transactions are like turn my light on, turn my light off, and the advantage of using a blockchain is you get like an indelible ledger of who told your lights to turn on and off, making it sort of more secure, making it you know. But regardless, you know, actuation uh, blockchains um, may well uh, become a thing. I, I mean, obviously, there's uh, things like consortium blockchains, uh, blockchains that uh, parachains that bring together other um, uh, sets of blockchains. Um, uh, we're going to have bridge chains that allow uh, blockchains to connect. Parach- uh, well, Polkadot and its parachains to connect to other networks. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot. Okay. Well, one other thing that I was wondering about parachains is when I was doing the research for this, I was kind of interested to see that they have expiration dates unless they're extended. And if they do expire, they go through this retirement period and those who contributed to the crowdfunding get their dots back. But I just wondered, so what happens to the smart contracts and other apps on that parachain? Because like, you know, on Ethereum, these programs are usually unstoppable. So for instance, an Oracle on Ethereum will always have a price. So in the case of these parachains, would people simply not build things on Polkadot, such as Oracles or any other functions that they would expect to exist beyond that time horizon of, you know, like six months or two years or whatever it is? Yeah, well, okay. So the retirement is is an interesting um, thing. So back, I don't know, two, three years ago, um, I didn't really have a great answer to this question. It was sort of like, well, if they're useful, then they'll just have to pay, you know. Um, 
But yeah, uh, about a year and a half ago, he came up with Parathreads. I think it was a year and a half ago. Maybe it was only a year ago. Um, and no, it was a year. Yeah, it's 2020. Yeah, a year and a half ago. Um, and Parathreads, um, as I mentioned, are these like pay-as-you-go block, uh, pay-as-you-go parachains, right? So it's like it, they, they don't they don't do much unless you sort of fund them. Um, uh, but you only pay for one block at a time, so you only need a few transactions that are um, willing to, you know, are, are paying enough that the rest of the Polkadot network doesn't desperately want to use all of the Parathread slots. And to give some, like, I would expect there will probably be about 50 free slots for Parathreads every six seconds. So I think when the calculations are done, it's like for for each Parathread to get one block in every, I don't know, 10 minutes, then it's like you can have the 3,000 or 10,000 or something um parathreads that are kind of mostly active um so it's they're going to be reasonably cheap now the idea is that when your block when your parachain if your parachain is sufficiently unuseful that you know you can't collect together the funds for renewing your slot um and it's not that this happens overnight right you get 18 months in principle you get any an 18 month grace period so you got one and a half years to convince people to make your token worth enough that you can swap enough of it for dots to pay for your parachain slot, to lease out your parachain slot. Now, uh, and, and you get 18 months to actually secure that next six-month period. So um, you'll you'll know very much ahead of time if this is coming. But that said, suppose for some reason you just can't scrape together the dots, then um, you don't just disappear... In, in a puff of smoke um, with all of your Oracle data or anything. Your, your, your chain stays active. Like it, 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 it sticks around. Um, it's there. Um, an Oracle would t- tend to use passive data transfer, which basically means you look at the relay chain to see what the last block was for, your, for that particular chain. And then you get one of the um, collators, one of the people who, who has the blockchain um, and, and it's information to give you a proof um, that, uh, you know, uh, hey, what was the gold price? Um, most recently, and, and they'll come back with a proof that we'll use the data on the Polkadot relay chain plus some extra witness, some extra data um, that fits alongside that, and you plug them together, and you can now be sure that the price of gold, according to this parachain, was such and such. Now, um, this will still work. So an Oracle chain wouldn't actually stop working. Now, it just means that their updates wouldn't necessarily be every six seconds. It would be as often as, um, as it's willing to pay for its updates. Um, and that's, that's basically how it works. It's like, you, you know, when you've had a mobile phone contract and it's like, you know, you're, you're paying per month and, and you're paying like $50 a month. And it's like, yeah, at the beginning it's okay. But then it, it kind of drags on, it drags on. And you're thinking, I'm not actually using this $50 a month subscription that much. Um, it's not that useful to me. Um, so you you tell them, look, I want to cancel my subscription. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, if we can't persuade you not to keep your subscription, then I'll tell you what, you can keep the number, but you'll go on like the pay-as-you-go tariff, right? So basically, um, just make sure you put, a, 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 you know, $20 on every six months and you'll, you know, you'll be fine. We'll, we'll keep your number active. You can still receive calls and, and all that. Basically, it's exactly the same with Polkadot. If once once your subscription ends, if it ends, um, then you just go directly onto the pay-as-you-go version tariff and you, blo- you you can still keep your chain going. You just have to pay per block. Okay. And and 
um, to, do you get finality with each block? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the same. It's, it's exactly like the same to- technology, like 100%. Okay. So one other thing um, that I wanted to ask about, a lot of people, I, I solicited questions on Twitter and people were curious <laughs> to know how the parachain auctions will be run and when you'll have them. Well, interesting question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really difficult to say because our, the auctions for parachains, I don't, I don't really want to start the auctions for parachains until pretty solidly sure that we know when the parachains are going to start. Cause as soon as you start the auctions, you're taking, you know, people are locking up their, their dots and it's like, well, yeah, it might be next week. It might be next year. That's not a great, like, you know, thing to be locking up your dots on. Right. So, um, Parachain auctions are going to start once we um, once we basically have tested parachains on whichever network they're, they're on. So, you know, we've got Kusama and Polkadot. We, we roll them out to Kusama first because Polkadot, we, we don't um, push code on that isn't audited externally by our security uh, company. Um, so Kusama will get the unaudited code that we're still reasonably sure is, is okay, but, you know unaudited so right take, and take it, you, just for listeners who aren't sure what kasama is kasama is basically the test network but there's actual real value being staked on it and the token the ksm token is, has real value so um the incentives are all there and it's like a kind of a true test environment uh, where you can actually see how the incentives will affect the ecosystem um yeah. well but so before you get into all that, like, do you want to also talk about the uh, candle auctions? Because I think people would be curious to know about those. Sure. Well, now, basically, um, the way that the, the these auctions work is um, is that we, we didn't want to. So blockchains necessarily are these like super open and transparent things. Everyone can see what's going on um, uh, all the time. And what we what we didn't want was to have, you know, this way this this game like this this sort of auction game where you know, I don't know if you ever used eBay. I mean, I you know I, I don't know is it used these days or is everyone just using Amazon? I, I mean, I haven't used it in years, but like back back in the you know the early days of Web two, I was I was an avid eBayer, um, like you know sort of two thousand five ish, like, like two thousand seven that, that sort of thing, and. Um, and what inevitably happened was the last 60 seconds, you know, the, the price would be, you know, $5, <laughs> um, slowly climbing up from $3, like $3.40, $3.45. Um, and it gets to like $5. And then the last 60 seconds, it'd be like 10, 15, 50, 500. <laughs> it's like, okay, right. So it was a 10 day auction, but actually all of the important bids happened in the last minute. Um, now that's that. That's a pretty standard kind of game theoretic thing to do. You basically hold your best bid for the very last point in the auction, um, and it's it's kind of rubbish for, to do that for a blockchain because it, it means that you. It's not great price discovery. People, if you hold it for the last minute, then it's like it, it, you might not get it in. Uh, miners, validators can kind of keep them back you know and 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 if if a few bad validators happen to have the last few blocks then you know maybe a good price won't will 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 get um chucked for for a bad one um it it's it's sort of fraught with with problems um what 
so what we wanted to do was was find a solution for this. It turns out there was already a solution. Hurrah! Um, history has provided us one. Um, so there are these auctions called candle auctions. Um, they're, they're named so because they basically the auctioneer had a candle next to them. And uh, the candle was lit at the beginning of the auction. People could, could, could put bids in. It was an open auction. So anyone can bid anything at any time as long as it's higher than the previous highest bid. Um, but when the candle goes out, then regardless of whether anyone's got any more bids to add, um, that, that last bid is the bid that, that wins. Yeah. So it's a really good way of making sure that auctions don't go on forever and that there isn't like a group of people, like a cabal of people with much higher bids that are just waiting and waiting and waiting until uh, everyone else has, has done their thing. Um, now, the problem with candle auctions is that uh, you can't put a candle on a blockchain. You can't even put like an abstract representation of a candle on a blockchain uh, because you can't end something randomly um, very, uh, uh, very easily. Basically, um, to end something randomly, someone has to know when it's going to end because someone has to model the can. Someone has to like be the the generator for the candle. Is like is the flame gone out yet? And if the, someone's the generator, it means they've got an advantage. So what instead we do is we do this clever thing where we have a retroactive ending. So the auction ends at the end of some hour, right? We Time is broken up into hours. And at the end of some hour, we say the auction's ended. But it doesn't literally end at that hour. Instead, it ends at some point in the previous hour. So we know it's ended sometime in the last hour, but we don't know when yet. And then we choose a point randomly in that last hour. And that point is when... Uh, the auction ended, which means there have been possibly other higher bids that have come in since that point because, you know, we're at the end of the hour, right? Um, but we discard them. And what this means is that even um, things like smart contracts that you can very easily predict the behavior of um, can still have a, a, a good chance of getting a, uh, a slot because even though I might instantly see the smart contract bid, and then bid one higher in the next block. Um, it can't, it might be that, well, then the smart contract maybe bids up in the block after that, and I bid. So I might be in a bidding war with a smart contract, but that still means that every other block, the smart contract uh, will um, will be the winning one at that point. And then it's like a 50-50 chance, whether it's the smart contract or me, because it's a block chosen at random in the last hour. So it might be one where the smart contract was winning, but it might be one where I'm winning. Now, normally you wouldn't be able to do that because uh, I would just always be checking the smart contract, bidding one up, and by the time it ended, I would I would be bidding one beyond the smart contract. But because we end at a random time, um, we can uh, we can avoid that problem. One Inch is a decentralized exchange aggregator that sources liquidity from the top dexes and liquidity sources to save users money and time on swaps. One Inch is capable of finding the best possible trading paths and splitting them among multiple market depths. Recently, the One Inch team unveiled One Inch version 2. The main highlights of V2 are Pathfinder, an API that contains a new discovery and routing algorithm, and a new intuitive user-friendly UI. The V2 improvements ensure the best rates on swaps while dramatically cutting response time. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. 
Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com Metal Card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. And one other thing that I was curious about is that each parachain is paid for via this auction. Um, and as far as I understand, there isn't payment for gas metering. So then how do you prevent DDoS attacks on a specific parachain? Yeah, it's uh, basically we leave it as a problem for the parachain. Um, it's We don't want to force parachains into a particular uh, model for how they measure or charge for their transactions. Um, what we instead do is say, well, look, enough validators must um, agree that your block, your parachain block, um, is verifiable, validatable, executable. Basically, can be can be can be um, run um, in a particular period, two seconds, I think, at the moment. So it's like a third of the six second um, block time. Um, and as long as that's the case, then we don't care how you how you uh, you know how you manage your transactions, how you manage your users, how you manage any of your blockchain logic to make it sure it fits in the two seconds. If for some reason it doesn't, then it's the block isn't going to get in and maybe you, your next block it will get in. Um, maybe some some other collator, some other uh, block producer will will come up with a block that, that takes less than two seconds. Um, but the point is that um, we we don't we want to be more abstract, more general. So a more general way of than counting gas, which is a very specific way of of working out how to make sure that blocks don't take too long, that you don't get DDoSed. Um, a more general way is just to say, well, well, we don't care. Like as long as it happens in two seconds, we don't care how you how you manage it. So alternative ways of managing it would just be to have voting, for example, or to not have transactions or to have transactions, but have a very simple way of measuring, not not gas, just saying, well, there's only one kind of transaction, transfer transactions. So it might be like a plasma kind of chain where it's just, you know, super um, uh, transfer oriented. And we um, and we don't we know that every transfer only takes however many point one of a millisecond or something. Um, and we we just make sure that you can't have more than. 25, 10,000, 20,000, 20 million, 20,000, 20,000 uh, of them in a, uh, yeah, that's right, in a uh, in a block. And, you know, then you don't need gas counting. You don't need dynamic uh, resource um, uh, measurement. Now, of course, for smart contracts, if you want to have smart contracts be very um, general and very deterministic, then you probably still want this. But the point is that you don't need it in every circumstance. And there are Lots of use cases where you know, more simple than the uh, uh, than the smart contract use case, where you really don't need that level of complexity, um, and the performance hit that you take from it. So okay. by pushing, by allowing um, uh, blockchain parachains to decide their own way of being of keeping this two second enforcement. Um, we allow them to, um, uh, we allow them all sorts of, of more um, um, flexibility uh, and potentially performance benefit. Okay. You've come up with a concept called initial parachain offerings. How do these differ from initial coin offerings? 
And also in particular, how do these avoid the regulatory problems that ICOs had in the US? Uh, well, we, you know, we, we, we don't really, um, we haven't done much legal research on, on, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think we're trying to, I think they're now PL, PLOs or something, parachain lease offerings. But anyway, oh, okay. Um, okay. you know, well, cause IPO is like kind of already a bit. Event, it's like trying to, <laughs> to not, um, to not sound like IPO, but anyway, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Why, don't, but why don't you describe what they are? Um, but yeah, so I, 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 the thing about parachain leases is, um, we call it like crowd loaning. So it's like crowdfunding, but instead of, instead of just handing over your, your, your hard earned cash, um, and getting, I don't know, something back, maybe a product or a token or whatever. Um, it's only a loan. So you lock up your, um, your dots or your Kusama, same on Kusama, um, for some period of time. Um, and you can choose like, uh, well, you know, ahead of time, how long it is so that, that you don't choose yourself. Rather the, the team chooses, they might say, well, we only need it for six months. After six months, we'll have launched our token. We'll have, uh, we'll, we'll have users, uh, will be very clearly a good use case. Um, and we will then work out other funding mechanisms, probably selling our own tokens into whatever market it is. Um, and, uh, and, uh, for dots and then using those dots. Um, that would be a, a pretty obvious way of doing it, I'd say. Uh, but that initial six months, you probably, you may well need to go to, um, uh, go to others, go to dot holders and say, look, you know, loan us the, loan us the dots for a lease, would you please? Um, and that's what this is for. So it's crowd loan. You're asking dot holders to put their dots in for a fixed period of time. Now this loan, this crowd loan, um, is kind of a bit like staking. It's handled entirely by the Polkadot relay chain. And then probably over time that will migrate into a parachain because we don't really want all of this complex stuff on, on the relay chain. Um, but you don't have to trust the team with it. That's the main thing, right? You're loaning the dots into Polkadot, the relay chain, and it's they just get kind of reserved. They don't even really leave your account. They're still kind of on your account. Um, and they're certainly still on the chain. And you can always check the logic of the chain to see, yes, they're, they're very much associated with the account. You have three and a half months to go. Then they'll be uh, back spendable by you uh, from your account. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's like, it's a bit like using the staking system. The only, um, the only difference is they're not producing any returns like they do with the staking system. Um, but presumably the team that is that has asked you to loan um, these uh, these dots for their initial parachain or their, their parachain lease um, are, are planning to reward your contribution, your loan with, um, well, I don't know, something on their chain. Perhaps one might imagine some of their own tokens, but I mean, I, I don't want to straight jacket these guys. Maybe they've got some other thing going on. Maybe it's a, 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 a I don't know, an, an NFT chain and they're giving you a, a free tickets to an a gig, I don't know, who knows? It could be all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, main, main takeaway is um, there is no transfer of value in this, right? You, they're not, no, the team isn't getting anything from, from the crowd, right? The crowd are just kind of locking up their tokens um, with a guarantee, guaranteed by the protocol that these tokens are coming back in a particular time period. Now, again, we haven't consulted uh, any one of any note, <laughs> legal or otherwise, on this um, and, and how it might be different. But, um, you know, in my uh, layman opinion, 
uh, I I would think that uh, the having uh, you know having just it literally be um, locking up some tokens for some period that you definitely get back later with zero risk or zero additional risk um, isn't really uh, kind of anything. You know, it's 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 like staking, and and that's not really a a thing, right? It's, it's just the rewarding is a thing, perhaps, and and might have some knock on effect, but but locking something up, you know, it's not a thing, as opposed to value transfer into some other entity, which very much is a thing. That's a that's right. a definite thing. Um, so I I think by moving away from the value transfer into into a guaranteed um, kind of lock up situation. Um, with a guaranteed return unlockup date, um, I think uh, that may well uh, move it into a um, to be viewed by various organisations as a um, as a non-event, basically. Okay, well, there are people who work at the SEC who listen to my show, so we may find out. Um, Let's see. So, Polkadot has on-chain governance. Can you do a brief description of how that works? One yeah. one thing that I find interesting about it is that uh, proposals that pass get automatically executed, and your theory is that this will prevent forks, which I find fascinating. So maybe you can also talk about that. Uh, sure. Uh, well, okay. So let's. Um, so we got. Let's let's um, move this from the meta protocol. So I mentioned earlier, you got this meta protocol, right? WebAssembly, this like low level um, language, basically, it's a machine language. Um, on which we can describe and define the Polkadot protocol and the Kusama protocol and the Edgeware protocol and the Moonbeam protocol and the um, I don't know, Centrifuge protocol, Carla protocol, mm-hmm. all these protocols, right? Um, and they're all built on this meta protocol, this WebAssembly-based meta protocol. Now, you've got a problem. The problem is, how do you know when to change your protocol? Like, what, what governs that? What, what decides that? So you can say, well, you know, there's there's um, a team and they've got a CEO and the CEO has a key and they can just change the protocol with a key. But, you know, it's not really in the spirit of decentralized um, uh, uh, blockchain kind of kind of um, uh, scene, is it? It's uh, not a very good answer. Um, and, of course, it has its big problems, which is, well, what if the CEO loses their key? What if, um, what if the CEO goes mad? So... We need a better way, and normally we decentralize this decision-making criteria. So we have multi-signatures, we have voting, we we try and you know bring it out, pluralize um, uh, the mechanism. That, that's all. That's all well and good, but then how do you make sure that um, this mechanism is respected? Like, if it's more than just literally a single key that is trivial to sort of respect, um, you can build it into the software, for example. Um, then. How do we ensure that that everyone is on the same page? We have this consensus problem. So this is where this is another reason why we have a meta protocol. The meta protocol allows for us to alter the protocol according to the rules of the protocol, and that's where we have this um, the governance, sure, but also the um, the enactment of the decision coming from the governance. Um, I mean, you know, we have like uh, we have this this situation in the in the U.S. at the moment with uh, you know a lack of consensus on the one side, uh, which is most of the news outlets, um, I don't know, seventy four percent, eighty percent, whatever of the population, and um, I don't know, every 
a lot of a lot of people on Twitter uh, all saying, oh, well, obviously, Joe Biden won the election. Um, and then on the other side, you've got um, you've got the president himself and um, a lot of um, a lot of uh, voices behind him uh, saying, well, actually, no, he didn't. Uh, Trump won the election. Um, we have a lack of consensus over the governance process itself. Um, and this uh, this obviously um, is problematic um, and kind of problematic, kind of kind of one of the ways because the reason it's problematic is because, the, the you know, it's not clear. People are asking, well, what exactly governs the transition <laughs> process? How do we know when, like, who should be the next president? If there, if there isn't consensus, um, who makes sure that the government is indeed the government that was that was elected if we can't decide who was elected and there's there there isn't like you know is it just well whoever's in the white house governs well that doesn't seem like <laughs> what if what if the current occupier doesn't want to leave the white house then what happens we we have this constitutional crisis and um and this is why we need to um this is why it's important to have um, absolute enactment like we this is why it's important to tie the enactment of the decision to the decision making process itself and make the decision making process a sort of um uh, the enforcer as it were or or at least part of the enforcement um now we don't like there isn't like an, an independent election commission that um has the power to to put to both you know, um, manage the election and put in the new president. That that doesn't exist, right? It's sort of the well, the old president. It just should get out of the way. Like it wasn't really answered by the the people who drew up the constitution. It's like, of course, the old president should just get out of the way. Well, um, let's focus on Pogodon. <laughs> I understand the analogy, but all right, just cool. yeah. Um, so anyway, um, the. Tying together the governance, the decision-making process, and the means by which that pro- the, the decision of that that comes from that process should be enacted is is really critical in any system, whether it's Polkadot or, or anything else. And that's what we're that's what we do. And the reason that we can do it is because we have this meta protocol layer. The meta protocol doesn't change, but it does govern and execute the decision-making process. So it's like. Um, the meta protocol is the thing that sort of runs the governance system so people can vote on what they think the next iteration of Procodot should be or should do or how it should change, uh, whether bugs should be fixed, whether there should be, whether should be, I don't know, rescues or any kind of, um, uh, whatever, um, re- remunerations, compensations, uh, out of order transfers, whatever it is. Um, but they, that, that meta protocol layer also governs what the protocol is which means it can enact any of those decisions um i mean any is any is maybe i don't want to i want to tie myself up with words but like <laughs> most the vast 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 majority of protocol changes that that we can ever envisage the need to do um this meta protocol layer can allow for them to happen and and that means that we never come out of consensus now with just to compare that to other blockchain systems you've got like forks so you've got hard forks that's how we change the 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 means of consensus that's how we change the protocol right now the problem is that what if what if the system, what if we can't decide on it what if i don't know 55% votes to go this way 45% votes to go that way well does it mean we should go with the 55% 
Well, theoretically, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, it depends. What's the governance mechanism? What's the decision-making criterion? We, there, if there isn't one, if it's like, mm, <laughs> weak consensus, <laughs> uh, then then there's no way of deciding. Yeah, you're in this kind of gray zone where, yeah, there's a, there's a majority, there's a strict majority, but there isn't like a way of actually deciding because no one's actually agreed on how we decide. Um, and this, that's, that's, you know, famously happened with ETH Classic. Uh, well, with Ethereum at the time, it was, there was no ETH Classic. Um, and uh, 90% of the voters at least wanted to, um, you know, do the rescue thing and 10% didn't. Um, and the 10% who didn't, um, carried on regardless, and uh, and and hence ETH Classic was born. Um, and it's th- these schisms. I mean, you can argue, you can argue schisms are a good thing. I mean, I think it's a, a very very questionable position to be in. Um, for sure, schisms are not a indefinitely good thing because you schism, you schism, you, you know, you schism into a thousand bazillion fragments. Um, then none of them are going to be very like you know, none of them going to have any users. Um, so obviously, yeah, maybe some things do get sufficiently big that, you know, and there's so many differing points of view or, or maybe two very large camps, um, that are sufficiently different in their outlook that you kind of do need to, um, do need to fragment a little, but, um, schisms cannot solve everything. And, um, if indeed they solve anything and it's, this is a, the way that we avoid schisms is by allowing people to come together, to have a forum where opinions can be aired, um, and then to have a decision-making mechanism that everybody buys into and everyone is behind um, the eventual outcome of. And that's why that's why democracies have not, you know, schismed and schismed and schismed over the centuries that we've had them. Um, it's because we have... You know, we have elections, and and people accept that. You know, in an election, um, you have your you have your vote. You have the time to you have a forum. You have the time to air your opinion. You have the time to listen to others' opinions. But at the end of the day, you vote, and then there's an outcome. And if the outcome isn't the same way that you voted, it's like maybe next time. But right, you still you remain part the of process. the system. Um, let's also now talk about security. Parity has a history of well-known security lapses, namely the hacks of the Parity multi-sig wallet, the first of which resulted in the siphoning of funds for some major ICOs, and the second of which froze half a million ETH. Now the security for Polkadot will be managed by the base layer chain. Mm-hmm. So if something goes wrong there, then the security for all the parachains will be at risk. What do you say to people who are concerned about the security of, pa- of Polkadot? As a company and as a team, um, we have altered quite a lot since um, way back when uh, we were doing um, the Parity wallet. I mean, most of that code was done in 2016-ish. Um, and Parity at that point really had no... Um, I mean, it, it, we were just, you know, giving out free software. It was, it was like, yeah, we're coding this stuff um, under the GPL, no warranty, you know. Um, we didn't have uh, the resources to be doing, you know, huge amounts of auditing. We didn't have the resources to be paying very expensive, I would add, external teams, um, uh, external experts at security um, to be looking at this stuff. So really it was like a quid pro quo. It's like, look, the code's here, but you've got to kind of look at it. Um, now, with Polkadot, that's... Uh, 
obviously changed a little. We um, um, we have had some uh, not insubstantial um, income from the um, from the, the the crowd sale um, or the well, private actually sale that we've been doing, um, and so it's. Um, with this, uh, we actually have the resources to do um, sort of proper, um, both internal audits, which I actually think are really very important. Um, and often will show, because people internally have a usually a deeper understanding of the technologies involved, often show like um, some of the more tricky uh, books. Uh, but also um, external audits and like the Polkadot um Codebase itself went through, I think, four separate external audits from four top-tier um, security auditors, uh, including one uh, which was a red audit. So it's like basically this this kind of top-level attack team who were just there attacking um, a. Uh, I think they were attacking Kosama actually. You know, they were actually trying to. I don't know if they were they were gonna black hat take it down. I don't <laughs> think they were, uh, but they were they were attempting to find holes in it, right? And. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, the delivery of software comes down to confidence. How confident are you that that what you're delivering is reasonably bug free? Um, and you know, you can never be a hundred percent confident. It, it's it's too complicated. It's like, I mean, Polkadot in particular is really quite complicated, uh, more so than Ethereum. But regardless, it's still even even big, even Ethereum, even like relatively constrained pieces of, of software um, contain bugs because they're built by people and people make mistakes and people make mistakes when they're looking at other people's stuff and teams of people make mistakes. You can queue up a hundred coders and ask them to find bugs in a particular um, piece of software, but you know, th there will, there will probably be bugs left after all 100 have had a look at them. Um, if you are on um, utterly like mission critical um uh, uh, systems programming, then you'll probably have multiple teams each independently implementing stuff, and you'll you'll have some way of like combining all of their implementations such that any individual bug doesn't actually result in 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 the problem manifesting itself. Um, now, and that's that's also a, uh, an avenue that we've gone down. We have two external um, teams, uh, so not Parity, um, um, other completely other teams, Chainsafe and Soromitsu. Um, that are implementing Polkadot in, uh, independently from us. So we're going down that route as well. We've got like huge amounts of external audits. Uh, uh, we have a continuous external audit process. Um, so we actually have um, uh, uh, a company, um, one of our, um, basically the, the security company that were one of the four that, that we had um, audit Polkadot in the first place, constantly auditing the Polkadot code base, constantly looking out for bugs, checking new code. We have a rule that basically no new runtime code gets into Polkadot unless it's been audited. Um, the only uh, the only exception to that is if it's like really trivial, like basically, you know, a number changed or some variable was renamed. But basically all code, all significant changes that go into Polkadot first have to get audited. Nothing goes on the chain until it's been audited. Um so, I mean, you know, while I can't say, well, you know, Polkadot's bug-free because it's a huge piece of software made by humans, um, it's we are now taking uh, every precaution that we reasonably can 
um, in order to make sure that, um, that that doesn't happen. Now, on top of that, we also have governance, which means that um, in principle, if we can agree that this was a bug and that it's, it, it really ought to be, you know, it has very clear um, a very clear manifestation. Um, for example, someone's funds get locked indefinitely, and um, you know, you can't you can't unlock them directly. But it's very clear that it's their funds. It's very clear that there is one key and only one key that controls these funds. Um, then it's and you can you know and and the governance of Polkadot, so the, the assembled stakeholders. Um, whether it's through a referendum or via the council. Um, in in Polkadot's governance case, it's like both. It has to go via the council into a referendum, then everyone gets a chance to vote on it. Um, if the assembled stakeholders decide that actually, yeah, we should fix this, we should, you know, whatever, unlock these funds or transfer it back or whatever it is, um, then it will happen. And that can't happen on chains without governance. Um yeah, so, it sounds like this was born out of your experience with the frozen <laughs> funds on Ethereum. I mean, yeah, we all, yeah, we all have our uh, drivers. Yeah. So speaking of Ethereum, Ethereum obviously is the leader at the moment in a kind of, you know, not maybe exactly the same space that Polkadot aims to compete in, but a very similar space. How do you view Polkadot as coexisting with Ethereum? Um, I mean, I, I, this this depends a lot on um on the driving uh, factors behind Ethereum. Um, I said very early on um, uh, in, in Polkadot's, I think it was like 20, 2018, I think it was the the, dev, uh, the dot con. Um, Polkadot's a bet against, or the bet against blockchain maximalism. Like really with Polkadot, I wanted to make a network of networks. I didn't want to like be... Um, I don't want to try and like solve all of the problems with one chain. I think Ethereum, uh, that certainly um, some of the um, some of the narrative surrounding Ethereum is there should only ever be one blockchain. There only ever needs to be one blockchain. That's Ethereum. Ethereum can host everything. Um, that's not a narrative that I ever really bought into, um, and um, and I, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's like a super like sensible narrative. Um, I, I think, uh, I think if, if, you know, Ethereum, um, ends up becoming a, a chain that, um, is sort of bridgeable, um, and I think, uh, I, I think that it's, there's a very good chance that Polkadot and Ethereum will, will just kind of, uh, happily sort of coexist with, um, logic and value flowing between the two, um, uh, very easily. Um, now, looking at some of, uh, you know, we're already looking at, at ETH2's sort of specifications, consensus mechanism, um, and how it might eventually pan out, because, of course, ETH2 is um, only has its beacon chain at the moment. So there's no there's no state transitioning really on it. There's no there's certainly no shards or anything happening um, in that regard. So we've still got a long way to go before we can be sure precisely what if ETH2's eventual technical architecture will be. Um, but my hope is that it will become um, it will become something that we can very easily interface with, and uh, um, and then from in that way um, uh, have the two you know sort of cooperate and uh, and and uh, form a sort of much bigger um, uh, ecosystem 
um, well, of, of apps. Yeah, I mean, Polkadot is already, I feel, kind of rolling out the red carpet for builders and users currently on Ethereum because Moonbeam has these unified accounts which let people use their Ethereum addresses on Polkadot. Um, they also have the same tooling as Ethereum does. And Substrate, of course, makes it possible to use the exact same code that ADAP has on Ethereum, but on Polkadot. Mm. And yet, as you pointed out, there is this strain of tribalism or even maximalism, maybe you might say, in Ethereum. So what do you plan to do to woo Ethereum users and builders to Polkadot and overcome that tribalism? Um, I mean, I, I you know... One of the big pushes of Polkadot was bridges, and I mean this 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 predates Polkadot. Parity, um, the, you know, did the Parity bridge um, uh, uh, like a, a while before. It was early twenty sixteen. We started work on that, if I remember rightly. Um, so, it, connectivity, uh, trying to bring together different chains, disparate systems into into sort of one functional economy, um, has always really been something that. That I've been interested, something that Parity that, that we at Parity have wanted to do, and I, you know, I, I really want to. Um, that's really one of the key sort of features, if you like, of Polkadot. One of the things that it was sort of designed around. Although Polkadot really isn't fundamentally a sort of bridge, um, a bridging thing. It is uh, something that bridges can very easily be developed on for, and something that we're already doing ourselves. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope that. Um, bridging and compatibility uh, will be um, re- very key factors in um, in in basically creating a more. It's not you know, it's not about drawing people over necessarily, but creating a more let's say fluid ecosystem, creating a, a very fluid um, uh, meta ecosystem of of blockchain. So you know, people can deploy an application on one chain, but not be constrained to that chain. Um, to then maybe deploy a sort of secondary application in another chain and become a multi-chain app, kind of like a multinational company. You know, the the, the more that we can do to ensure that chains, uh, the applications, that teams don't are not bound into just a single uh, blockchain, the better. And that's that's obviously very important for Polkadot as we are coming at this um, as a as a as a you know a relay chain that, that whose main reason of existence is to connect all of these little parachains and 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 also external chains. And would you ever do anything like I don't know liquidity mining or any kind of incentive to attract people to Polkadot? Um, I mean, uh, maybe we'll see. I mean, it's <laughs> at the end of the day, Polkadot can only exist if it's useful. Uh, for it to become useful, it needs uh, it needs teams. And so it's not that I, I, I don't want to like, um, I don't want to pretend that, that, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, Polkadot's the sort of Buddhist monk of the ecosystem that's sort of just gonna, uh, take a beating and keep on smiling. Um, not, not really. Uh, but, um, but nonetheless, I think there is a, um, I, I think there is, uh, you know, a, a sort of middle ground, uh, um, that is very, um, uh, let's say, um, um mutually enlightened self-interest position that allow uh, uh, that allows us to um that allows basically all of the the chains to sort of come together um and uh and cooperate coordinate open their ecosystems and allow kind of like free trade you know allow allow people the opportunity to um to move around allow teams the good teams to deploy across para, across chains across parachains across ecosystems um 
So I, I don't want to say that we're not we're not going to compete. Of course, com- countries within the European Union compete in many respects with each other. But um, you know, there are um, there are still really valid reasons for the European Union um, to exist, and I think the same is true. Um, for um, you know, different um, uh, for an ecosystem to be built, a multi-chain ecosystem to be built. So there's also a trend toward transactions that are composable, at least in the DeFi world. And by that, um, we mean that one transaction can include multiple contract calls within a single block. But as far as I understand, in Polkadot, when you send messages between parachains, they can't happen. The, the transactions can't happen in the same block. So there can't be these instantaneous contract calls across shards. And that, of course, then breaks composability. And so, you know, there are a lot of things like, you know, flash loans or atomic swaps wouldn't really work cross chain. Is composability something that Polkadot is working toward? Yeah. So there's two main, uh, there's two main things. So that, that, that on the face of it is, is right. But there's um, a couple of, a couple of sort of mitigating uh, factors to this. One of them is that um, composability is likely to be mostly a thing within a single chains ecosystem. So the tightly bound smart contracts um, that do things like flash loans are likely to be within the same DeFi ecosystem, whether it's Moonbeam or Akala or whatever it is. Um, that's 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 one of the reasons why you would want um, things to be constrained within a within a single parachain. Now the other the other mitigating factor is that um, ultimately what we want to do is have um, asynchronous. Um, uh, uh, contract calling. Now, what this would allow basically is for um, in the um, in the programming model, in the execution model, it would appear as though um, when you uh, when you send a transaction off, it sort of it comes back instantaneously. When you send a message off to make a flash loan or whatever it is, it comes back instantaneously. But in reality, um, it, it it gets. Um, the the sort of executing context the thing that's the thing that's like taking the flash loan um actually is halted is paused for a little a short period of time while the message goes away onto perhaps another chain um it gets executed the flash loan comes through it goes back again carries on executing and so on um now this requires some some interesting uh, and not entirely trivial um, um, uh, alterations to the computational model. And, and wait, just to be clear, so then that takes three blocks, and so it's like an 18-second transaction? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it may take... I mean, it depends whether it's going all the way into another parachain or whether it's staying within the parachain. Um, but the... the And it may take one block, it may take two, it may take three. It's It depends on a few factors. Um, but it may, it may be as much as three. Yeah. Now, this... Um, the flash, like if you know, it's not clear precisely what the use cases will be. If it's an Ethereum-style flash loan, then yeah, maybe you do want to have it on the single chain. Now, the, it's worth pointing out, of course, that all um, all multi-shard architectures will, will will have this issue. Like all multi-shard architectures that expect to be able to um, call across shards as easily as they call into their own shard will will have to deal with the fact that. Um, going across a shard introduces latency. It can't be handled within the same block. Um, so it's not clear how uh, other multi-shard architectures like ETH2 uh, are going to handle this either. Um, ETH1 gave everyone a free pass because it's not scalable. 
Yeah. Right. Um, if you so if you if you constrain everything into the same blockchain, like ETH one does, then problem solved. Yeah. Um, which is you know the the position that Moonbeam and Akala and Edgeware are already in on Polkadot. If you want to spread things out between chains that operate in parallel to each other and therefore get scalability, um, then you will have to deal with the fact that things don't get processed as a whole in one block. And uh, that's just a, that's a fundamental issue with computer science, with logic, <laughs> with maths. You can't, you can't get around it by some clever programming trick. Um, but if you introduce things like asynchronous um, calls to it, then you can kind of massage the situation a bit, mitigate some of the issues uh, that, that you might face if um, a, a component that you want to compose with is on another chain. Now, the only other thing I'd add to that is that composability doesn't just... It, composability isn't about being in the same um, execution environment. There are all sorts of ways of composing things that don't require that. Example, when you want to do an insurance contract, you need an oracle for whatever physical phenomenon it is you're insuring against. The insurer, the, the, that oracle doesn't need to be on the same chain as the insurance contract. It's enough just to provide a proof from another chain that the insur- that, that oracle said that the weather was really, but there was a huge storm. Um, houses got knocked down in your area. Like that can be done as a proof. You feed it onto the chain um, that that is that is providing the financial um, whatever compensation, and it's enough, right? There's no need for them to be on the same chain. It's only this specific ethereum sort of DeFi, where they've made use of the fact that it's all on the same chain and therefore you can do this stuff that all has to be done within a single block um very easily um that's not a limit that's not a fundamental limit composability can happen even if it doesn't all happen in the same block um the web3 foundation has 30 percent of all dots and i'm not sure what amount parity has so maybe you can fill us in on that how do the web3 foundation and parity plan to use their collective stake within the network will you participate in parachain auctions for instance uh i don't think so (laughs) no um i i we don't have we don't have yeah we have less than that um, I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's not it's not thirty three. Um, well, we, I, yeah, I mean, according to Masari, that I, that's where I got the thirty percent uh, from the Web three Foundation. It was like twenty nine point seven percent or something. Okay, well, um, we we uh, a lot of that has been like so that thirty percent figure from the original. Um, uh, the original document has been eaten. No, into- no, no. I calculated it according to the current supply. I did the math on my phone. Okay, the current supply. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm or not. I'm not sure what, supply, what, your, what your math is, but okay. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the you it. know it's it, it's substantially less than than thirty percent um, because uh, some of that went to um, companies that are doing that are building Polkadot like Parity. Um, some of that, uh, but also like you know Chainsafe and Soromitsu, and um, uh, some of it went through to grant companies. Some of it went through to auditors, SLA. Um, various other SLAs that we have. Uh, so SLAs are uh, the um, uh, software um, agreements. Um, so, and then of course there's employee buy-in schemes and all of that stuff. So that that all comes out of that chunk um, of, uh, of of dot. But anyway, aside from that, um, we don't plan on um, on on putting uh, parachains like purchasing like parachain leases with it that's not that's not really what we're what we're in 
or that's that dot that the foundation is keeping is really just a long-term alignment uh, mechanism. So the foundation like has benefit if Polkadot um, does well um, and is able therefore to do more. Um, and uh, the main thing it's, 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 it's going into grants. It's going into keeping the foundation running, which means, you know, managing um, various ongoing legal and regulatory um, affairs um, continuing to, um, you know, um, manage things like adoption and um, outreach and that kind of stuff, um, as well as research. Um, so the foundation runs its uh, research outfit. Um, the uh, That's the main thing. It does do staking, but actually relatively little these days. Um uh, it's uh, most of that dot, most of the staking of that dot, the vast majority will end up going to the Polkadot, um, uh, the 1000 validator program of Polkadot. So basically um, trying to get as many validators in as possible, build a really good um, validation uh, ecosystem, um, which is, um, uh, will soon be, if it isn't announced yet, it will soon be announced. It's right on the cusp. Um, and uh, the Kusama, uh, very similar to Kusama. So, uh, the foundation's uh, KSM um, uh, um, stash is also um, much of it engaged in the Kusama's 1000 validator program. Um, yeah. And, and it's really, it, we, we try not, we don't tend to vote either. Um, if a vote is down to the wire, then we'll probably take up a tie breaking position. Um, but we try and keep, um, we try and keep our dot out of the, uh, and, and Kusama out of the sort of general, um, um, sort of governance. Process. Okay, so we're at we're basically at time, but I'm going to just ask you two more questions, um, and let's we'll try to um, keep the answers brief. In June, before Polkadot's mainnet launch, a preliminary draft by the Crypto Ratings Council gave DOTS a higher risk of being labeled securities, a 4.75 on a scale of five, with five meaning the asset has quote many characteristics strongly consistent with treatment as a security. Again, this is preliminary. There hasn't actually been a formal rating that's been issued. What do you plan to do to address the possibility that dots could be deemed a security? It's our position that dots are absolutely not a security. Um, and, um, you know, dots are very clearly a utility. Like, you use them to get parachains. Parachains have a very clear um, utility. Um, so we, you know, there is no way that we could imagine a world where dots were labeled as a security um the uh you know these guys take into account lots of factors um one of which was that the dot network was not live at the point that they um that they uh you know, published this pre-publication <laughs> non-opinion um and um and that may well have, have contributed significantly to this, um, to this, not quite score. Um, I, I would expect that any later um, reasonable appraisal, um, um, particularly once parachains are launched, um, will be um, quite different. Pogodot enables public and private parachains to interact with each other, and China's blockchain-based service network recently adopted Polkadot. How do you imagine Polkadot will serve the enterprise world, and how will being on Polkadot, which has this ability to communicate with public parachains, benefit enterprise blockchains? Um, 
I, th- I think connectivity is super important for enterprise enterprise blockchains. Um, now, I think I might be at ends with a lot of uh, enterprise people, but I'll tell you why. Um, enterprise blockchains are great. They're, they're, they're like the intranets of the early 90s. They, they're, they're, they have a very clear value proposition for um, enterprises in this, in this world right now, in this tr- sort of traditional mindset. Um, it's like, yeah, you know, you can track what all of your internal transactions are. You can make sure no one is is cheating on their their audits. You can very easily audit everything that's going on within a company, um, and uh, and and that's that level of transparency um, is very um, can be very uh, sort of um, um, persuasive, um, especially when the when you're someone at the top who has to who has to make decisions, and it's kind of difficult to see below one level of management below you. That will work initially in the same way that the old intranet uh, allowed office memos to go back and forth much more easily than, you know, farting around with bits of paper. Um, But what really made uh, intranets be useful is the fact that the intranet was eventually connected to an internet that allowed offices um, of different companies to send memo memos to each other like email. Um, and then they start to be able to advertise to each other via the World Wide Web. And they start to be able to interact with cons- consumers via the World Wide Web and HTTPS. Um, this is uh, this was a super important progression, and we wouldn't have had the later stages without that first stage. So I can imagine that enterprises are super keen on building the blockchain for their their company. Maybe they're multinational, with lots of different sort of arms. Um, maybe they're a conglomerate. Maybe it's actually different companies, but the same overall um, uh, aligned incentives. Maybe the overall uh, owner is the same. Maybe it's between a consortium. So no no real aligned consentives, but a general assumption that you're kind of working in the same space and probably do want to sort of communicate with each other a lot. Um, but when we eventually get to the point that companies are offering their services through a um, a very minimal cost um, extremely agile transaction-based uh, network that doesn't need any certificates or kind of middlemen or or any additional like visa fees or anything like this. Um, when it's literally just business to business doing uh, micro transactions with each other, maybe it's for data, maybe it's for permissions to use some particular online system. Who knows? It doesn't doesn't really matter. But when we get to this point. Um, that connectivity will be priceless because it will allow composition of solutions. And as we saw with DeFi, composition of solutions is really where uh, the gold is to be mined. All right, great. Well, this has been such a fabulous discussion and um, I hope people really enjoyed it. I did see a few questions about Kusama and uh, and there just was so much to cover. We didn't get into everything quickly, but I did say it's like the test network and there is actual live value with their own tokens. So um, I, you know, hopefully people can read more about it. It it is very interesting that Polkadot has uh, both of these networks live. Um, Yeah. Evan, thank you again so much. And um, I look forward to seeing what happens on Polkadot. Thanks, Laura. It was interesting. <laughs>